This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today's Tuesday, August 14th, 2018. I am Patrick Moran. And if you see me around town in Buffalo over these past six weeks, a far heavier Patrick Moran than the one who first arrived in Buffalo around mid-July. But whatever, that's neither here or there. You know what? Let's kick some funk. Coming up on today's show, I was able to dip my foot back into the national media pool. And I went out and got one of the best and most respected NFL writers in the business, Greg Bedard of BostonSportsJournal.com will join me on the show today. A veteran of some of the biggest sports newspapers, or actually just newspapers, period, in the country, as well as Sports Illustrated. I talked to Greg about a variety of things in a wide-ranging interview. We take a deep dive into Greg's life and career, going all the way back to being a kid from Springfield, Massachusetts, living in Florida, going through college and we talk about all the major places he's worked at and how a little league baseball team literally changed his life and his career i get his take on several sports media and social media issues we got some cool human interest stuff to talk about and of course plenty of football talk you want a hot take i'm telling you right now call this a spoiler call it whatever you want wait to hear what Greg Bernard has to say about the Pittsburgh Steelers and more specifically, Mike Tomlin. That alone is worth the price of admission today, boys and girls. Trust me on that. Of course, we also talk about the New England Patriots, a team that I probably hate more than I've ever hated any other team, but admittedly, I'm also extremely jealous of him. So I talked to Greg about what it's like covering the Patriots and Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, all that stuff. It's a great interview. I promise you, one of the best yet. One of the best yet on this podcast, for sure. One quick programming note, real quick here. I'm only doing one show this week today. That's today. That's it for this week. I'm going to be traveling back to Florida at the end of this week. And frankly, I don't want to spend one of my last two nights in Buffalo, you know, on this trip that I've had, going through the task of putting together another podcast. It's been a great trip. I've been here for nearly six weeks in the 716. It's been a great trip, I should say, with the exception of I've literally gained 15 pounds. 15 pounds, man. And I'm not joking. I started that chicken wing uh, review series on my moranalytics.com blog. Without really trying, this thing just took off. And, you know, 15 new chicken wing spots later that I have never had before since July 19th later. 
I'm talking to all of you today. And I still got a few more days and a few more places that I'm going to try and I'm going to write about them. You know, it's, <laughs> I guess it's kind of sad that my chicken wing takes have become more popular and in demand than my sports takes. But you know what? Whatever. It is what it is. Like I've always said, you know, you got to take what the defense gives you. It's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed this trip. But I also am very much looking forward to going back home, the comfort of home, getting back in my studio, getting back into my routine and everything. So anyway, long story short, like I said, no podcast this Friday. After this, I'll be back again next Tuesday. And that's enough about me and definitely enough about my chicken wing exploits. Here's my interview with the very talented and very candid Greg Bedard of BostonSportsJournal.com. Okay, my guest today has had a successful career covering the NFL, more specifically the Dolphins, Packers, and Patriots for a trio of newspapers. He's also written for Sports Illustrated, and now is the owner, editor, and columnist for the BostonSportsJournal.com, which covers all the Boston professional sports teams. I am talking about Greg Bedard. How you doing, Greg? Thanks for coming on the podcast. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. I I look forward to it, and uh, I'm honored to be part of it. Well, I'm definitely honored to have you on the show, and I kind of want to do the same format that I do with most of my guests. Got a lot of sports fans out there that want to get to know you guys a little better, so that's what I try to do. So let's go back to the beginning for you. Now, you were born, and I did some research on you, of course, you were born in Springfield, Massachusetts, but you spent part of your youth being raised in Florida as well. How did that come about? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I was born in uh, I was born in Springfield. My family's from Athol and Fitchburg, in sort of the middle middle of the state. Um, and when we when I was about going into second grade, my dad, who was a civil engineer, uh, decided to take a flyer. Uh, one of his sisters had a timeshare down in Florida. So she, he asked her to bring back uh, the want ads from there. And he found a job, um, took a risk and moved us all down to Boca Raton, Florida. And uh, the rest is sort of history. My dad rose in that same company to senior vice president. And, you know, he's now semi-retired. And um, but so he just, sort of looked for an opportunity and found it. So we moved down there and, um, it was, you know, South Florida back then was a, it was a lot different than it is now. Um, you know, especially where I lived out in West Boca Raton, um, there were actually a lot of intersections that didn't have anything on them at that time. Now they're all built up and everything. And, right. Um, so it was, it was kind of a cool place to, to grow up, um, we lived in a planned community. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of schools, a lot of playgrounds. We did a lot of, um, we did a lot of playing in the backyard by this tennis court where we just me and the neighborhood kids every day after school, we would go out and we would play a different sport every day and, and, uh, you know, heavily involved of course in, in youth sports and stuff like that. But we would always, Massachusetts was always home to us just about every summer we would come back uh, to Massachusetts, spend time with family, stay with family. We would get like uh, my, my parents would send away back then. That was when, you know, to get tickets to sporting events, you actually had to mail in money. Like I remember getting, we would get the, the Red Sox ticket sort of application brochure every year. 
and we would figure out what games we wanted to go to. And then you would send a check and hopefully most of the time you got your tickets. And so we did that just about every summer. And so that really kept us connected to back here. And so, you know, even though I grew up for 10 years in South Florida and then I worked for uh, 10 years early in my career in South Florida, um, Massachusetts has always been, always been home to us. And, um, so it was, it was nice when I got the opportunity to come back eventually, um, uh, in my career and I'm still here now and we don't have any plans on moving. Now it sounds like sports, even since going back to being a kid has always been a big part of your life. When did you first really start getting into the, to the aspect of sports writing and sports journalism? Yeah, that wasn't really until college. I mean, I was always, I was one of those kids who was always obsessed with sports, traded, um, you know, baseball cards with the neighborhood kids. And, um, and actually, you know, my uncle, Larry Hoskin, he was, um, he was drafted by the Cubs organization. He played in the Cubs for a couple of years. Uh, he roomed with Lee Smith at one point, um, with the Cubs. He ended up opening up a baseball school, um, when we were first down there, uh, at first it was named the baseball school in Delray beach, Florida. And, uh, eventually, uh, he became friends with, uh, Bucky Dent and it eventually became the Bucky Dent baseball school. And it's oh, wow. until, yeah, until, until it sort of closed or changed hands a few years ago, it was the best baseball camp in the country. And I used to spend a ton of time there during the winter time. They always had, uh, major league stars come and talk. And of course I got to go and, and, and see that, but I was always, I was always obsessed with sports. Um, I, I remember, you know, even, even if, even though we lived in Florida, you know, I was obsessed with the Red Sox. And so I just remember every day opening up the, the sun Sentinel and, and going in the Palm beach post and going to the baseball box scores and checking for the Red Sox box score all the time. And, um, and looking for Jim Rice to see how he did that, that day, because he was my favorite player. And plus it was also great that in Palm beach County, we had, um, you know, some spring training teams there. So the, the Braves and Expos were there. Uh, they were big when I was growing up. Um, we always used to go and we, we would see, you know, Dale Murphy and Tim Raines and all those guys. And, um, and so, you know, we're always obsessed with sports and, and, uh, I became a Dolphins fan down there. The rest of my family stayed Patriots fans, but the Dolphins were the only game in town. So it's really all that I knew. And Dan Marino was coming of age. And so I got caught up into that. And, um, you know, but really in terms of, I, I didn't really think about it. I knew, you know, in high school, it was kind of when sports center was big for ESPN. So I think every kid my age sort of wanted to be, you know, Dan Patrick or Keith Olbermann. And I thought about going along that same path, but at some point, I think it was in college at Rutgers where, you know, I'd read the daily, um, the daily Targum, the student newspaper. And, you know, I got, I would read all the New York and New Jersey papers. And that's when I really sort of hit me that, you know, I kind of, I wanted to try, you know, writing at some point. And, um, you know, I did that, uh, when I, when I joined the student newspaper and just started writing. Now you mentioned Rutgers. That's where you go to college. I ask all my sports media guests the same question because I don't know, for some reason it really interests me. Why did you decide to go to Rutgers and were there other colleges that you considered going to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was a pretty good baseball prospect 
in school, actually golf and baseball. I got recruited for both sports. Um, but I was a pretty good baseball player. I was probably, you know, a, a solid D one. I mean, not, a, not the greatest D one prospect ever, but I, I was okay. Um, uh, you know, I was a pretty good ball player. So I got recruited by all the big schools in the Northeast, um, you know, some Southern schools, but I really wanted to stay in the Northeast. And, um, you know, when it came down to it, I wanted to go to a, a school with a strong communication program. I wanted a baseball program. And so, um, you know, I was being heavily recruited by, uh, really the finalists that came down to, um, James Madison, Rutgers and Seton hall. And of course, Rutgers at that time, so this was 92 that I graduated high school in 1990. They became, they were one win away from the college world series. Um, Seton hall had a story program, of course, with Mo Vaughn and John Valentin and yeah. you know Morton and all those guys who went on to play for the Red Sox. James Madison had a phenomenal program. And actually when I went on my visit there, I was like, I want to go to James Madison. This place is unbelievable. They had a turf infield and a grass outfield, great stadium. And, um, you know, so I went on visits to all three places and, uh, I came home and the James Madison recruiter called me and it was really hard to get into out of, out of state. Um, and I was a good student, but I wasn't a great student and my SATs weren't all that great. And, but he called me up and he said, if we're, if we're your number one choice, then we are going to offer you one of our four admission slots basically to get anybody in. And I didn't even hesitate. I said, absolutely. You're my number one choice. I want to go to James Madison. And, uh, so we hung up, you know, I waited for the letter of intent. It didn't come. Uh, the coach never called me back and uh, it turns out he didn't return my calls. It turns out, I guess he was basically offering me and another kid and another kid was basically their number one choice. I was their backup the number one decided to take it and they just forgot about me. So it was between Seton Hall and Rutgers. I loved, uh, I had a good time on both visits, but Rutgers just, I just loved the, um, I just loved how it was, it was a big school, but it was also small at the same time. And, and if people have never been to Rutgers, it's, it's of course the state university of New Jersey and it's a big school, but it's not like these other places, whether it's Penn state or Maryland or wherever, where, it's just one big college campus. It's actually Rutgers is spread out over three different towns in the same area. And I just, I loved how, you know, you could get this sort of small college feel, but also be a part of a big college at the same time. And, um, and uh, I absolutely uh, made the right choice, even though um, I don't know if you want to talk about my shortened college baseball career, but um I, I had a great time at Rutgers and it was everything I hoped it would be. What position did you play in baseball? Uh, I played first base and, you know, my freshman year, uh, you know, so I was basically a recruited walk on at that point. Seton Hall offered me more money, but um, I just, I liked the opportunity more at Rutgers. And, um, you know, so I walked on at the program with a little bit of book money and, um, you know, my freshman year, um, they changed my swing. They wanted me cause I'm, you know, I'm almost six foot four at the time I was about two twenty. um, you know, pretty big guy playing first base. And they wanted, they wanted, I was more of a high average doubles hitter and they wanted to turn me into more of a power hitter. And so they changed my swing my freshman year. 
um, I just could not figure it out most of the time. I mean, I, I, I played for the, the sort of JV team against junior colleges and Seton Hall had a JV team too. And, uh, for about half the season, I literally could not hit anything. I, I couldn't hit water if I fell out of a boat. I was terrible. <laughs> and, but all of a sudden, like midway through the season, it clicked and I started ripping the cover off the ball. And they, they actually had a discussion about promoting me to the varsity for the Atlantic 10 tournament. Um, they decided not to do that. They said, you know, why don't you just, we'll just wait for next season. You know, we'll come back in the fall. We'll see how things are. And then we'll go from there. And, um, so I did that, came back, played fall ball. I had a great fall ball. I led the team in home runs. I made the varsity, um, coach Hill, who's legendary coach. And the only disappointing thing about stopping my baseball career was not getting to play for him, um, longer, but he said, you know, you're going to be on varsity. You're going to start midweek in non-conference games. You're going to be the defensive replacement on the weekends. Um, you know, and I was backing up a senior, so, you know, I was going to play pretty quickly. And, um, then some guys from the dorm, uh, asked me to say, Hey, why don't you come play flag football with us? And you know, fall ball was over. I said, yeah, sure. You know, so I went out there and, uh, on one play I dove for a kid's flag and, and my left ring finger got stuck in his jean belt loop oh, and detached my tendon I had a really invasive, uh, surgery and I was, I was going to miss the spring season. Definitely. I was going to have to rehab a long time. And I was just, at that point I was like, look, I'm not going to the major leagues or anything like that. Like at the best, I was going to be a decent D one player, maybe play a couple of years in the minor leagues. But at that point I was like, what? I don't, I didn't really see the point. And that's when I decided to walk into, um, the offices of the daily Targum and uh, you know, that my life sort of altered there. How important was that? And you know, what would become your career field? And for people out there listening, you know, who are high school kids right now, they're going to go to college and they want to become a journalist. What are some of those valuable experiences that you get from working at a good college newspaper? It was, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was the best part of my college experience. I mean, you know, just, I mean, not only the experiences and, you know, I got to cover, I, I just remember, you know, I wrote a few stories, um, sort of what they do is you write three to five, I think stories just to see how you are. And then they decide whether to put you on staff and things like that. And they find, they put me on staff and the softball team was the, was the first team that I covered and it was the, my first beat. And I just loved it. I immersed myself. I covered them like they were the Red Sox. Like I would, I would yeah. skip classes to go cover a doubleheader at Princeton. I remember I, I, uh, I wrote an article where I questioned why the coach didn't pinch hit for a hitter late in the game because she had been a, she had been on a cold streak, and um, I, I ended up making the girl cry. And you know, but you know, it just comes with the territory. I mean, just the invaluable experiences from that. I got to cover the football team. I covered the men's soccer team, which was. I think that was 1991 or 1990. And what a tumultuous year that was. The team started their preseason number one in the country, went to nine, one and one was number one in the country. And then the bottom fell out. Um, there was all sorts of problems with um, player discipline. And I was reporting, you know, all sorts of stuff. I had, you know, some, some associates of one of the players on the team showed up at my, 
off-campus apartment and uh, was looking for me to uh, sort of uh, get me to write a certain way. Luckily, I wasn't there. I was at wow. the offices. But, I mean, it was, um, you know, I you know I covered Terry Shea's um, forgettable season at Rutgers. I got to get – I was at the Rutgers-Notre Dame game. Football game was the last game in old Notre Dame Stadium, and my signature is still – inside the basketball arena there, um, you know, from, from when we did that. I mean, and, and, but the biggest thing was, it was just the life lessons that you learned. And like the people that I worked with there are just, I mean, some of them are still just unbelievably good at what they do. I mean, you know, Carrie Budoff is the, like, I think the edit, I forget what her title is now, but she's basically like the editor of politico.com. Uh, Mitra Kalita uh, is basically like the executive editor of CNN.com. I mean, the list goes on and on with the people that I worked with there, um, that have, that are still in the business that have risen so high. And we were all like in one big office, just, you know, pushing each other to get better and, and to hold each other accountable. And, um, it was just, it was a, it was a phenomenal experience. And it's, it, you know, I always tell this to, you know, kids who asked me about getting into the, the, the field and how they should do it. And, and, you know, the biggest piece of advice is, you know, yeah, you're looking at journalism schools and some of them are really good and you get experience and that's, that's great. But like, you know, journalism isn't something you learn. It's something you do. Like right. you have to go, if you want to be a journalist, you have to go be a journalist. And, you know, so I, I just, my whole experience there, um, if I, if I didn't have it, if I went to a different school that didn't have such a good student newspaper, um, there's no way that I would have gone to where I've gone to in my career. Yeah. Now after school, you eventually get your first big newspaper job at the Palm beach coast in the late nineties, but it's not like you just walked in and you were handed the Miami dolphins beat. What are some of the things that you did there when you got hired, you know, and how to eventually did that opportunity, to cover the Dolphins beat eventually come to pass for you? Uh, a lot of, a lot of long hours grinding. Um, I'm sure. saying yes. I mean, you know, when I first got out of school, my future wife and I, she, she was, um, she put on the Rutgers golf team and she wanted to be a term professional and, and things like that. And I said, well, why don't we go down to South Florida? And my, you know, my uncle's down there and maybe he can help us get on our feet and I can hook on with one of the newspapers. And I tried, but, nothing happened my first year. So I, so I took a job at this Wellington forum weekly paper covering town council events. And it was, it was a miserable job for miserable pay. Um, but you know, it got me some certain experiences, you know, doing town councils, dealing with, you know, police and things like that. So, you know, it definitely served something, but I still, I just, you know, I just said to myself, I want to get on with one of the big papers and I just want to get my foot in the door. I know, you know, I'll take whatever they offer. And, and they, the Palm Beach Post was advertising for an agate clerk, which people don't really understand this now. But, you know, back when, you know, this was the, or this was the mid 90s, um, you know, a lot of the newspapers were still actually being printed where you had to, you know, tape things up and they took pictures of that. And so, you know, that's the, the agate type is the stuff at the, at the back, the paramutual results, the standings things like that. Yeah. So we had to take care of that, but we also, you know, had to take high school calls of the events. So that's what I did for like, I don't know, $7 an hour. And 
Um, I took whatever I could get, the, you know, writing assignments, doing high schools, and it just it slowly built from there. And I tried to, you know, show that I could handle more and more, and they kept giving me more and more. But, you know, at the same time, I wasn't. They weren't really looking at me when they had openings in the regular sports department. Um, you know, they would often, you know, not even advertise stuff and, you know, hire interns. And some of them were really good. Like Israel Gutierrez was, you know, one of those guys. And, um, but I just, I never thought that I was going to get a, a chance. And, uh, I, I interviewed for jobs to lead the business a few times. Um, thought I got close to one and then, so I was still doing that. I, I, I was, I was an ag clerk, but I also rose, I, I rose to the point where, you know, I was a copy editor and still writing and, and, you know, and doing whatever I could. Finally, they started these sort of suburban editions, um, like at the Boston Globe, they have like Globe West. It was similar. They had neighborhood post. And so it was a full-time gig, um, with benefits and, you know, young married guy, I took whatever I could. And, uh, so, I did that and I continued, I would help with dolphins or Marlins. I would fill in wherever. And then, um, in 2003, um, the little league team from one of the towns that I covered Boynton beach, um, started winning games, uh, in the, in the little league tournament and they won districts and I was at every game for that. Then they went to sectionals and they won all the games there. And I was, I made the drives for that. Um, and this was for, you know, no pay. I mean, I was just doing this on my own. They went to States, won that. Um, they went to uh, the regional, uh, the Southeast regional. And I remember talking to one of my sports editors and um, I, they said, are you ready to go to the, to cover them? And I said, yeah, you guys going to, you know, pay for this. Cause you know, it could be like a week over there. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one of the editors said, um, you know, let, let, we'll get back to you. And so, I don't know, about an hour later, they called back and they said, yeah, you know what? We're just going to get a stringer for now. We're going to see how it goes. And, and by that point, you know, I'd covered about 15 of their games and I just, I had a feeling about this team. Um, they were not only were they really good, but the sort of the eclectic group, group that they had. And, uh, so I told the editor on the phone, I said, I said, bleep you. I'm going, put my stuff in the paper. And so I, I packed up my car. I put an inflatable mattress in the back of my car and I drove over to Clearwater. I stayed on my sister-in-law's floor for the week. And, um, that was a wise decision because, um, it was the biggest break of my career. That team swept through the Southeast regional, um, went to Williamsport, uh, they won the U S national championship. They lost to Japan in the world series championship game, but it became, it quickly became the biggest story in South Florida that year in sports. And, and the, and the Marlins even won the world series later that fall. And I still think those kids were bigger. Uh, that story was bigger mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and so I own that story by the time the other papers got in, I had the story wired. I knew all the parents. I knew all the siblings. I knew all the kids. And so I owned the story. And, um, you know, that finally got the editors at the Palm Beach Post to say, hey, you know, this Bedard kid's not too bad. And so right after that, um, they hired me on the main section. 
so that was uh, early 2004. I did high schools for a little bit. Then they had me do some Marlins, Dolphins, and they called me into the office. And I thought they were going to name me Marlins backup writer, which I did not want because I didn't. I wanted to stay married. And I didn't want to get divorced. But they said, <laughs> uh, right, how, right. "How do you feel about how do you feel about covering the Dolphins?" And I said, "Sure, let's do it." So that was that was 2004, and um, you know the rest is sort of history. So all this education, all these dreams of you know growing up to be a sports writer, all these years that you were putting in grinding, it turns out that. It was Little League Baseball that really gave you that big break to really help you jumpstart your career. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I, I get, I get emotional just about every time I talk about it, but you know, it's just, you know, I mean, from, uh, you know, from where I was, um, you know, it took me from, you know, let's see, like, you know, 1993 to 2004, it took me 11 years to go from agate clerk out of college to getting just a job on the main sports section at the Palm Beach post. And then it took me seven years from there to go from getting a job to sports illustrated. And, you know, none of it would have happened. I mean, who would have guessed that, you know, when you think about your career and how things can go and, and the twists and turns and, and, you know, what's, what are going to be big stories for you? And I've covered plenty of big stories. You know, you never would have imagined that a bunch of 11 and 12 year olds would, um, change your life. Yeah. I mean, it's just, those are the type of things that happen. And, you know, I try to tell people when I talk to them, you know, the kids that I talk to, like, you know, especially with the kids these days, you know, sometimes they get frustrated in some of my dealings with them because I don't think they have the right attitude about things is like, you have to make your breaks. Like it wasn't just about me covering East Point and beach, 2003 little league team. It was every single decision and every, everything that I did to get to that point that allowed me to not only have an opportunity to, um, you know, cover the story of my lifetime, but to, to deliver once I got there. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, who how many other guys have gotten their big breaks from a bunch of 11 and 12-year-olds? But those kids um they've always been special to me. They continue to be Devin Travis, the Blue Jays second baseman was on that team. Oh, we wow. talk every now and again. Um it was uh it seems like it was yesterday. Um but it was it was a long time ago, but it was a it was a special time. What led going to the Milwaukee Journey or Journal Sentinel in 2007? Among your highlights there, you covered Brett Favre's final season, if I'm correct. As a journalist, what was that, that like correct. covering Brett Favre? And what led you going to cover that beat to begin with? Yeah, I mean, really it was, um, you know, my we found out that my wife was pregnant with twins. Um, now I forget when we found out, but I assume it was that spring, early summer. Um, and, uh, you know, basically my wife and I looked at each other and we were like, uh, you know, we didn't, we wanted to go someplace else to raise, raise our family. And so I was sort of, you know, uh, I was, by that time I was the lead dolphins writer for the Palm beach post. Um, you know, I was successful and made a name for myself. Um, you know, I broke up a lot of stories on Nick Saban, uh, being hired by the dolphins, his exit from the dolphins. Um, you know, so many things went on when I covered the dolphins and, 
Um, you know, I saw this advertisement for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Um, no one actually, you know, recruited me. And I called, I sent in my stuff. And like two days later, Gary Howard, the sports editor, called me up and he's like, he's like, I didn't think you'd be interested in this. And I said, I, you know, I said, I just keep my options open. So, you know, I'd love to come and talk to you. And, um, you know, so I went up there, um, interviewed, um, I didn't know much about the paper. I didn't know much about, you know, I, I didn't know all that much about the Packers. Um, had never been to Wisconsin, had no family or friends in Wisconsin. And, you know, my, my wife was, uh, she had just given birth to our twins. And, um, you know, a lot of people at the time, you know, people probably won't believe this or have a hard time remembering, but at the time, the Palm Beach post sports section at that time, which was just, it was a phenomenal place to develop. Um, it was, it was kind of a, you know, a murderer's row. I mean, for, for a paper that size, it was one of the best sports sections in the country and, and turned out a lot of great writers. And so I was sort of next in line, like the guys who before me on the dolphins beat, um, Todd Archer went to Dallas morning news. Joe Shad went to ESPN. Uh, Jeff Darlington went to the Miami Herald and now he's at ESPN. Um, and so it was my turn. And a lot of people at the time said, you know, that's not a big enough jump for Greg in that job. Like they thought that I should, and, and quite frankly, the job was the number three job at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel behind Bob McGinn and Tom Silverstein, who were, who, you know, had decades on the Packers. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of people were like, well, that's not a big enough jump, but I didn't even, well, first of all, they offered me a great salary and it was, you know, I was just, I just, I was looking for a change in, in Wisconsin, you know, I thought would be a nice place to raise a family. And, um, but you know, my thinking was, I knew at some point I wanted to be either the globe's football writer or a national football writer. And, and the thing was, I wasn't one of these people. And I think a lot of people sometimes are guilty of it and hey, it works out for them. That's great. You know, I think a lot of people like take jobs just to keep advancing or to get some, they just want to get someplace. Yeah. That's not what I wanted to do. Like I, I knew when I got a big boy job, I wanted to be able to deliver. And for me, I thought that going someplace else, covering a different team, seeing how other people do it, working with two legendary sports writers that, uh, that I would learn a lot and, and that would, that would, uh, be advantageous to me, um, down the road. And that turned out to be true. What was it like covering Brett Favre, a larger than life kind of player, you know, in personality, you were there for his last, yeah. his last season, right? Yeah, I was there for his last season. I got there. I got there. Like, I think I covered the final preseason game and, um, you know, I, introduced myself i think that first week that i was up there to brett as he walked through the locker room and you know he couldn't have been nicer i'm glad i did introduce him myself to him then because that was about the last time i saw him until the end of the season because he i didn't realize this at the time but he didn't dress in the locker room he was never in the locker room he had a he had a separate changing um sort of it was some office that nobody was using uh, by the equipment manager. And so you never saw him. And then the next time I saw Brett Favre in the locker room was 
like the week of the NFC championship game when he decided to sit in his locker, which he never used and sort of hold court to all these national reporters. And, um, you know, so he just did, he basically just had his press conference during the week and that was about it. I mean, you know, watching him on the field was just tremendous. I mean, he was so good that season. If it wasn't for, if it wasn't for Tom Brady and Randy Moss breaking all those records for the Patriots that year, Far probably would have been MVP. And um, to cover that ride to the NFC Championship game, you know, the the interception, and then and then the whole summer of Favre. I mean, it was just it was uh, it was unbelievable, and the experience. I mean, you know, but more importantly for me, the biggest thing about working at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel was working with Bob McGinn and Tom Silverstein, and especially Bob because of the way I've never seen anybody cover an NFL team like he does, where he would analyze the film and break things down and keep his own stats. This is well before any, there was any pro football focus or anything like that. I mean, Bob McGinn and Cliff Crystal before him were doing this for years where, you know, they were, they would, they would break down the tape and, and do all this stuff. And as soon as I started reading Bob's stuff and then working with him, I was like, I was like, this, this is what I need to be doing. This is, this is the, this is what people want. Yeah. You know, we, sure. you know everybody's watching the games. They want to know why, why did the team lose? Why did the team win? Why didn't they win by more? Why is this guy playing over this guy? And Bob got it down to a science as much as possible. And so, you know, I was like, I have to learn what he's doing and wherever I go after this, um, I need, I need to do that as well. Now you go to the Boston Globe in 2010, just kind of your hometown paper. And, you know, you spent three years yep. there. You go from covering, okay, so you go from covering the end of Brett Favre, you know, the beginning of Aaron Rodgers, and then, bam, 2010, you're there, Tom Brady, very much in his prime. Is it hard to even remember you covering a crappy quarterback in the NFL? Oh, trust me. I did my penance with the Dolphins. <laughs> All right, a lot. Fair enough. I saw a lot of bad quarterbacking from I saw, you know, Fiedler and Feely wants that last season when he got fired to Saban came in, moved that made the Dante Dante Culpepper mistake. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, instead of signing Drew Brees. Yep. And then that led to all sorts of guys. But um, you know, the Globe calling one day was just you know, it was a tremendous opportunity. I mean I you know, I could have I could have stayed in you know, either at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel or the Globe, both were just tremendous jobs. Um, you know, when uh, when Joe Sullivan, the sports editor of the Globe, called me up, and you know, you're talking to a kid who, you know, first of all, we would get the Globe sent to us when we lived in Florida. When I went to Rutgers, I got the Globe sent to me, and I would read it all the time. And then, you know, when I when I was in high school, when we moved up from Florida to Massachusetts, we moved my sophomore year in high school, so you know, that's not exactly an opportune time to move into a town. And so, you know, for the first about month at Lincoln Sudbury high school, you know, or two, three, four weeks, I didn't know anybody. So what I would do is I would go into the library in the morning while everybody with their friends would hang out in the cafeteria and things like that. And I would open up the, the sports section of the globe and devour that. And, you know, so, you know, the, the Will McDonough's and, uh, Dan Shaughnessy's and, and Bob Ryan, those guys were almost like my first friends when I moved back there. And so, yeah. 
when I was sitting in a Philadelphia hotel room and Joe Sullivan called me up and we discussed the position. And at one point, you know, I think he basically offered me on the spot and he said, you know, I view you as a direct descendant of Will McDonough as an NFL writer at the globe. And when he said that, I just got the biggest smile over my face. I mean, that probably doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but it meant the world to me. And, um, so it was a job that, you know, that I had to take, um, leaving the journal Sentinel was, was brutally tough. Um, it's the only job that I left in tears driving across the country. Cause I just, it was, it was such a phenomenal experience. It was such a great place for me and my family at that time. And, and I just had, I just had a blast there and, um, you know, but the globe, I mean, like I, I said at the time when I wrote, when I announced it uh, on our Packers blog at Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, I said, you know, it's like when Bear Bryant went from Texas A&M, I think it was, to Alabama, you know, he said, Mama called. And, yeah. you know, this the globe calling me was Mama calling me. And so, um, you know, to come back and, and cover the Patriots and, of course, covering Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and Robert Kraft, um, you know, it was, it was great. And, um, you know, it's certainly, uh, it's, it, it's certainly a challenge. It's certainly a different, um, media mentality, uh, fan mentality here than in other places. But, um, you know, there's no question that, um, it, it, uh, it forces you to be your best every day and, you know, who, who wouldn't want that? Right. Now, in 2013, you go to Sports Illustrated. I mean, let's be real here. What kid who wants to be a sports writer growing up doesn't dream about someday writing for Sports Illustrated? You know, you get that opportunity with MMQB when Peter King launches that. Was that a difficult decision for you to go there, or was it an easy one? It was in many, uh, both. Um, uh, It was, you know, because I had such a great situation at the Globe, um, I had made a name for myself. People, the, the stuff that I brought that Bob McGinn taught me, um, you know, and that I brought to the Boston market, um, yeah. you know, really sort of caught fire. And, you know, I like to think that, um, you know, some of the things that I did in my analysis and things like that, I think, you know, a lot of stuff from, you know, my intensive training camp reports and game analysis and stuff like that, you know, now everybody does that here, but, you know, at the time when I did it, nobody did it. And, and, you know, so I certainly established myself. Um, I had a great relationship with Belichick and Brady and Kraft and, um, you know, it was, it was tough in the sense that, you know, look, I had a family and, you know, a wife and, um, you know, you know, how much, there were a lot of things that we talked about in terms of how much traveling was going to be involved. Cause I didn't want to travel as much about, you know, covering a team and as an NFL writer, I mean, that was about the most I wanted to do. And so there was a lot of discussion about that, but the thing was, is that, you know, about, I don't know, about six months before MMQB really came into form, um, Peter called me around Thanksgiving and, um, and he had long been a mentor to me. I remember talking to him about the Milwaukee journal Sentinel job. And he said, you should absolutely take it. He's like those, those fans will make you a better writer. He was absolutely, I didn't know what he meant at the time, but he was absolutely right. And so he called me up and he said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, you know, nothing. And he's like, well, I'm giving a speech 
in Ashland, uh, which is the town next to me. He's like, why don't you pick me up and drive me to the train station? He's like, I might have an opportunity that could change your life. And I was like, okay. And so I picked him up and he sort of sketched out to me what was going on. And he's like, you know, cause his contract at SI was coming to an end. He was having all sorts of opportunities, whether it was ESPN or all sorts of different places. And he, and he basically said, look, I don't know where it's going to be or how it's going to happen, but I'm going to have an opportunity to put together my own, my, my own NFL team of writers. He's like, you're my number one pick. Are you in or you out? And I said, well, <laughs> if they're paying, I'm probably in. <laughs> and oh, yeah. so, I mean, you know, and so that it sort of went from there. Um, and then, you know, finally the offer came and, you know, it was, it was a tough decision, but when, you know, when Peter King calls you and first of all, it was a lot more money. And when Peter King especially calls you, I mean, the most respected football writer in the country and says, you're, you're his number one pick. Um, you know, it's really hard to turn that down. And, um, you know, maybe in hindsight, considering what's gone on since then, maybe I should have, um, but you know, the, the chance to work for Peter and to do some of the work that I did for sports illustrated, I mean, I never would have gotten the opportunity anyway. And, you know, so, um, you know, everything, everything I guess has its good and bad. Sure. And it was, you mentioned this, it was a really turbulent time this past year at, uh, sports illustrated. I'm sure even for more for you personally, it was roughly a year ago, you know, SI did, they did a lot of downsizing and they laid you off, not just you, but big names like Jim Trotter and Don Banks as well. How difficult yep. was that for you at the time? And for fans, I think it really kind of represented evidence that, you know, how much the sports journalism game, just like actual sports, it really is a business because it felt as a sports fan, someone who loves to read, it just felt unfathomable to me and to a lot of others, you know, that guys like you and Jim and Don would be let go like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there were plenty of other names too. I mean, you know, I mean, look, it's, <laughs> it's awful to get that phone call. Um, when they say, you know, look, um, you know, I, I never want to have this, this, this talk with anybody, but, um, you know, we're going to have to let you go. You know, you're part of a bunch of layoffs and you're just like, Hey, I wasn't, it, I will say it wasn't a total shock. Cause you know, once I got the sports illustrated, I saw, sort of understood the landscape and understood what was going on financially. And, you know, and of course I'd seen Jim Trotter and Don Banks who were just tremendous journalists, yeah. um, lose the exact same position I had before me. Yeah. And so I would be an idiot if I didn't start thinking of that and, you know, but it didn't, you know, it wasn't a shock, but it was, uh, you know, it was a, it was certainly a, uh, you know, a huge blow and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. It just, it just is. I mean, to be, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you zoom up and you're, you know, you think you're at the pinnacle of your profession at sports illustrated and you think, you know, Sports Illustrated, it's Sports Illustrated, you know, I'm not going mean, to, this job's never going to go away. Maybe the magazine won't be around in, you know, so many years, but, you know, I'm certain to have a job for a while. And, um, you know, it was, it was rough and, um, you know, and, and trying to find another job was rough because it was just, it was one of the worst times and still is, I mean, in 
sports journalism where, you know, I think at the same time, ESPN was laying people off. Fox yeah, big sports time. decided yeah. to let go of all their writers. You know, it was just like, I was looking at the landscape and it was just like, you know, and I talked to everybody. I mean, the globe wanted to have me back, but they couldn't. The Herald wanted to hire me, but they couldn't. Um, you know, just, um, you know, it, I talked to, I talked to all sorts of different places. I thought that NFL.com make, might, might've made a lot of sense. We had a lot of talks, but, um, you know, nothing ever happened there. And, um, and so, you know, I, it, at the time, like I, I had about a month's head start, you know, before it became official, you know, I asked that of them. I was like, you know, look, you guys brought me there. You know, I brought my family down to talk to those people because, we realized what was at stake when I took that job. And, you know, so I brought my wife and we talked to Chris Stone and we talked to the editors and, and to make sure that it was right and that it was right for our family. And, you know, they said, you know, look, you guys have nothing to worry about. We're going to take care of you and your family. And, you know, and you know, what was it? Three, four years later, um, you know, that wasn't happening. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it, it was rough. And so, you know, I asked, I asked them for, you know, can I have a little bit more time? I mean, gee, you know, I got twin 10 year olds at the time, like, yeah, you know, and they said, yeah, they got me some more time on the payroll. And so, you know, I had a little leeway time. And so I didn't announce it at first, uh, even though I wasn't writing for SI and, um, you know, I was hoping, I was hoping to land a job in that time because, you know, I didn't want to have, the conversation with my kids that I ended up having, you know, about, you know, daddy not having a job and things like that. Cause you know, you don't, you don't want your kids to have to even consider stuff like that or to deal with stuff like that. So, you know, it ended up, I ended up having to have that conversation with him, with them. And, um, you know, and that sort of around that time, the idea for Boston sports journal.com was launched. Yeah. And you know, I, I remember your tweet the day where you did announce it. I was stunned. And a lot of people were, I'm sure, too. I, I guess there, there is kind of a silver lining and everything. You know, what went into you starting the Boston Sports Journal? You know, and for, and for those out there listening who don't know, it covers, you know, all the Boston sports teams. I personally hate all the Boston sports teams. I'm a Buffalo, New York guy. But it's a great, great website. And you got a lot of talented people there running for it. But what went into it? Was it just frustration with, you know what, I don't want to work here. Or this isn't going to work out. I might just be better off having my own thing. Well, I mean, the number one thing is that I looked at the landscape and I tried to project down the road. You know, I knew, I knew there weren't going to be a ton of people at that time hiring me like right away, but it was like, okay, if who are people going to be hiring before training camp and I'm not going to have a landing spot and am I going to have to move? And I actually, there was one conversation I actually had with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel about possibly returning and, um, the timing just didn't work out. And plus we really didn't want to move. I mean, we love, we've always loved Boston and we want to raise our kids here. I mean, even though, you know, I would certainly entertain that, um, if the, if the opportunity presented itself, but, um, you know, really, I just looked at the landscape and, and I just, I wasn't sure whether there was going to be a chair for me when the music stopped, when training camp started. And, and so, you know, around the same time when I announced on Twitter, a couple of people, a couple of my Twitter followers said, Hey, you should check out this model that's going on in Pittsburgh with DK Pittsburgh sports and, and check it out. And, you know, almost immediately when I looked at it, 
um, you know, it looked, first of all, I said to myself, I said, this is it. This is the, this is the future. Yeah. Um, because, and, and, and I thought it was right in my wheelhouse because I had a lot of, uh, I had a lot of various experiences in, in my career knowledge. You know, I was a copy editor at one point, which we talked about. And also when I went to the Milwaukee journal Sentinel, like I went there as the third guy in, but really I was in charge of their Packers block. They wanted to, they had a big, at the time the journal Sentinel had, uh, was called uh, Packer insider, which was a, they had a subscription based part of their website that I was heavily involved with. And so not only did I do the blog and the insider, but you know, I, the, the, the blog we built up from like, you know, we would have like five, 10 comments on blogs, but you know, I tried a lot of different things and I tried to build a community and, um, you know, eventually we we're getting, you know, anywhere from 300 to 500 comments on a blog post. And we ended up winning an editor editor and publisher award for best sports blog. I think after my first year there. So, you know, it was very similar, the things I've seen on DK site and also, you know, the stuff that I like to do. And so, you know, that's where the idea was born from there was, you know, talking to my wife and, and then it was, you know, talking with a business consultant and we started putting together plans and projections and P and L statements. And, you know, basically we said like, you know, is this possible? You know, can we do this? Cause I remember at the time after I got laid off, you know, people were like, you know, I, I pay to just read you on Patriots or the NFL or whatever. And I was just like, how many people are going to pay to read just me? Like, there's no way that's sustainable. But then I saw what DK was doing. And then I thought, then I knew some of the names that were available in Boston, people who were out of a job, like Sean McAdam, who's a legendary Red Sox writer who I loved reading, you know, Chris Price also does the Patriots. Um, you know, at the time, Joe McDonald was let go of ESPN. He covers the Bruins and, and, you know, I had my eye on some young and up and coming kids, you know, that cover the Celtics. Um, and so, you know, I started talking to them and seeing if they were interested and, um, and, you know, and then we decided to give it a go and, um, you know, it's been, we just went over our first year. It's been very successful. It's been pretty much according to our plans. Um, you know, some things have been better, some things have been worse than we thought, but you know, it's all part of having a startup and things like that. But I think, you know, overall, I think, I think we have a great product. Um, you know, and I think it's, um, I think it's going to, I always knew it was going to be a slow build. I, you know, I'm not one of these people who wanted to go out and get a bunch of venture capital money. Cause you know, I, I, that, I think that people lose their jobs that way when those things start to get involved. I've seen it sure. firsthand. Um, and so I just wanted to go sort of the slow and steady route. And, and, you know, I, you know, really I was, another part of it was I was sick of working for people in the industry who didn't know what the hell they were doing and had no clue about the future and were, you know, basically playing with people's lives. And I figured if I'm going to continue doing this and I'll give it another go, if I'm going down, I'm going down on my own accord. I'm not going down on somebody else's mistakes. I was like, I was worked at a lot of newspapers and stuff before. Is, is the newspaper business just something that's completely dying? Because again, you know, I live in Florida, but I'm very, very piped in to Buffalo. And I'm not sure how much you know about it, but you know, what's happening to Buffalo News over the last couple of months has been crazy. Guys, accepting yep. buyouts left and right. You know, Jerry Sullivan, columnist for 30 years, took a buyout 
uh, the hockey writer who was there for 16 years. He left as soon as he could. Another columnist, um, Tim Graham, had no interest. You know, one of the most respected writers out there. He didn't have any interest in renewing his contract. He jumped ship. He went to the athletic. It's like, I don't know if it's like this in every major city or, you know, mid-major city. But but in your opinion, as somebody who's, you know, been involved in newspapers for so long, and now you're doing what you do now. How do you feel about the newspaper business? Is it a, is it an industry that's really in very big trouble? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that it is. I mean, I do think that, you know, rich people like Jeff Bezos and John Henry, um, you know, I do. I think there's a future for them, but I think the gap between where they are now and that future in terms of, you know, dealing with. I mean, they, the biggest thing is they just have so much overhead and, you know, and it's a lot of what they do is so antiquated. It's like, they're going to have to take big losses to go forward in the future without a printed product. And it's just like, how many newspapers are going to be able to survive that? I mean, yeah. I think there is absolutely a place for news or a news gathering, local news gathering services. Um, but in terms of actual newspapers, there's no way they're going to be around, in, you know, 10 years. I mean, so, you know, how do you deal with that? But are the, are newspapers, um, you know, what they do, what they represent, are they absolutely vital to what they, what to just our country? Absolutely. And I don't think that they're going to go away. I think, you know, it's, there are going to be some tough times, but you know, they, the, I mean, basically the quicker they ditch the printed product, and move straight into digital, you know, the better. I mean, I know they're trying to hang on for the 60 somethings that are out there, but, um, you know, I, I just, I don't think that's wise. I, you know, I do think that they're moving in the right direction. Thanks to some, or at least some places like the Washington post are moving in the right direction. Thanks to some smart people. But, um, you know, it's, there's no question that's a rough time. And I think a lot of places are going to go through leaner times, but, I think at some point it's going to go the other way. This is a question that I like to ask all my sports media guests. You've covered a lot of athletes during your time and, you know, covering the NFL, who would you consider the toughest athlete that you've ever had to deal with when it comes to doing your job? And I'm not necessarily saying that this guy is the worst person or the biggest jerk, just the person that's probably made your job harder than it ever needed to be. Is there someone out there that you could think of during your time covering the NFL like that? Well, I mean, if I was, if I was a Patriots beat writer, then it would be Bill Belichick. I mean, you know, and I have a great relationship with Bill. I mean, it's just, and I have nothing against Bill and he, he's trying to do his job to his best ability. I mean, but in terms of, I mean, he just gives no information, no insight. I mean, I think there's a, I think there's a way to, you know, give uh, the media and fans a little bit of information without giving too much away, but Bill's just decided not to do that. You know, I think it's cause it's, it's easier and quicker to do it that way. And so, you know, he just, he just does it. So, the, you know, but I haven't, you know, I just, it didn't take me very long to start covering the Patriots where I was like, okay, I remember when I first started on the Patriots, I was like, I have to be in the locker room every day. I have to be at every Bill Belichick press conference. I have to do this and that. After about two weeks, I was like, what a complete waste of time. I said, you know, I would be better served watching more film, talking to more coaches, calling more scouts and, and getting information that way, because I'm not going to get it out of the Patriots. And that's, I'm, I don't, I don't hold any ill will towards them for that. That's, 
what they think is best for their organization. It's just, okay, they decided to do X. Well, you know, I gotta, I gotta go another way to do my job. And so, you know, in a lot of ways that made me better. And actually that made me probably what I provided in terms of analysis and things like that, even more valuable here than it would in other places. Other than Belichick. And I don't have, you know, a big problem with Belichick. Um, in, in terms of somebody who was really just a pain in the rear end. Yeah. Somebody you're like, Oh, this guy's going to make getting this article done more difficult than it needs to be. Um, you know, I'm trying, I mean, I, I just don't, I mean, like Favre never talked to the local, I mean, outside of his press conferences, Favre like never talked to local beat writers. I mean, but he would, you know, I remember he got, I think he got the PFW good guy of the year award in 2007 when I covered him. And I was just like, how can you give it to a guy who, yeah, he's great to the national guys. He talks to all the national guys, but he didn't, you know, talk to the beat writers who were there every day. Some of them who have been there every day of his whole Packers career. I just, um, I never understood that. So it was hard to really do any good Brett Favre stories, which is probably the way they wanted it. You know, you brought up something that really caught my attention when you talked about how to cover the team, how you liked, how you think the team should be covered nowadays. And I think that something is definitely changing. How important is it or is it not as important that you don't need to be in a locker room every after every practice? You don't need to be at every press conference. It seems like today with the consumer, it's more about, like you said, breaking down film and offering analysis and stuff like that. Because when you have something like Twitter, you know, let's just say Brian Hoyer is having a great day at practice and he hooks up with Chris Hogan three straight times. I'm going to see If I'm a Patriots guy and I follow a bunch of Patriot writers and stuff, I'm probably going to see that same tweet, a different version of it, nine, ten times instantly in a row. You know what I mean? So I think with today's media, it really is about offering something different than what we've, uh, you know, than the old traditional sense. Well, here's the quote from the locker room and the coach said this and the coach said that. You know what I mean? It's a lot different nowadays. And I think you really get that. Yeah. And well, let's first mention that, you know, um, any any person that gets paid to write about sports for a living, if you're putting anything on Twitter for free, well, you're cutting your own throat. I don't yeah, know what, I, don't, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I see that, you know, even the, even people at the globe told me they're stated like they changed the globe, even changed their business model. Not as a result of us. I think it was around the same time, but they're, they've changed from an advertising-based business to a subscription-based business. They're the same as us, uh, the Armada, everybody else, you know, that are selling subscriptions. And so are these other papers, whether you're the Providence Journal or, or Boston Herald or whatever. I, you know, and even some of these other people who work for pay sites, like I was just looking through Twitter today and somebody put on this somebody put on this story that I was like, Oh, I want to click on, but you know, it's a subscription site that I have a subscription to. And, but then I just scrolled down through his Twitter feed and I already got the news. Yeah. Like, what, why would I pay for a story? Like, like, you know, if you value what you do, um, you shouldn't put anything out there for free. I mean, because what you're viewing is, you know, or and getting is information. And I just don't understand that. So that's first and foremost. Um, you know, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the the days of having to be at everything, um, every game, every locker room, every road trip, I think is just antiquated. And a lot of it is just stupid spending. 
and and is partly responsible for where this industry is right now. Considering, I mean, you have to change with the times. I mean, this isn't 1960 where not all the games were on TV. Yeah, not all. You know, there weren't readily available press conferences right after games. Like, you know, like this past year, I didn't go to Mexico City to cover the Patriots because and also the Patriots spent a week in Colorado between a couple games and I, we didn't spend any money to go out there because it's it's number one the Patriots don't say anything anyways like so what what am I getting of value to my readers I'd rather stay home and, and talk to scouts and, and and look at film and so I think I think a lot of that is antiquated but I mean the biggest thing is like you know you have to you have to find you know, a, a unique insight in stories to bring to people. That's just the bottom line. Like, you know, and I, and I, and I go through with this, with some of the guys that, that work for me who have been in newspapers a long time and just are, you know, just used to it a certain way. You know, I tell them, you know, if I'm, if we're paying for you to be on the road, you are not there to chronicle the team. AP is there for that. You are there to go and get me something unique out of the locker room, wherever. I don't care where it comes from. Find me something unique that the viewer or the or the Red Sox fan or whoever at home can't get by simply watching Nesson and posting press conferences. Like, just, you know, don't even bring me that stuff because you might as well just sit home on the couch because you could have done the same thing. So, you know, you, you that's what you have to be constantly thinking of. And this is something that I, you know, I learned, especially at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, where it was, you know, the Packers were covered more heavily than, you know, any other team. And everything was, every minuscule thing was a big deal in Green Bay. And, um, you know, you just have to find a way to bring unique insight and analysis and stories to your readers. And if you don't do that, wh- why, why are they going to read you? Why are they going to pay to read you? I couldn't possibly agree with you more. We're going to wind down. I just got a couple more questions left for you. And I have to ask you this, man, okay? Because like I've said, I'm in Buffalo. 17 years, the Bills didn't make the playoffs. The Sabres, I think it's going on six or seven years now. They haven't made the playoffs. Do you ever feel a little bit spoiled that you get to work in a town that always has at least one team and quite often two or three teams that are contending for a championship? Like, Pretty much, actually not pretty much, literally every year, somebody in Boston's competing for a championship. You know what I mean? You ever start to feel a little bit spoiled yeah. that, you know, you're always covering a team like the Patriots, for example. I don't think they're ever going to not win the AFC East again, ever. You know what I mean? It's like you got <laughs> six know. wins, almost five or, five or six wins on the schedule just from the AFC East every year, automatic right now at this point. You know what I mean? You ever feel a little bit spoiled covering these teams? Uh, You know, a little bit. I mean, I never really think of it that way but like you know i mean it's certainly true i mean this this boston is just on an unbelievable run it's it's you know i think the best sports town um you know in the country and and uh you know there's not a better place to to cover the teams and big games than than boston it's just uh you know it's awesome and and i feel privileged to be a part of it and play my small role in it <laughs> is Tom Brady a likable guy or everyone like around the, who, who's not a Patriots fan? They're just a bunch of haters out there. Is Tom, is Tom Brady a pretty likable guy to you? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, I stopped, there were some lessons that I learned on the Dolphins beat where I, um, I took forward and, and even, I mean, I even, I even made them with the Patriots covering Aaron Hernandez and some of the things I said in print that will be probably on my, 
um, journalistic tombstone um, when all is said and done. But, um, you know, there aren't many guys that I tell fans like, you know, this guy's the real deal or you can believe in him, you know, but Brady's one of those guys. I mean, I just think, I think Brady's phenomenal. I mean, do I think he's perfect? You know, like some of his persona? No, but you know, he's a real, he's a really good guy and he means well, and he's just an unbelievable competitor. I've never been around anybody that's a competitor like him. Um, you know, and, and, you know, but you know, he's lived his, his life largely the right way. And so, you know, good things happen to good people. You're a football guy. You're an honest guy. So I'm going to ask you this, and then we're going to do the mini lightning round and get out of here. Who do you think in the AFC has the best, most realistic chance to knock off the Patriots this year? This year? Yeah, this year. Got to be that it's got to be the Dolphins. I mean, you know, I, I mean, the Bills are a mess of quarterbacks. Oh, I wasn't talking um, about the AFC East. <laughs> I'm talking about the whole AFC. Oh, you mean Ain't just, nobody oh, you mean the in AFC. the AFC East got any chance. You could put those three teams together, and I don't think they're beating the Patriots. But I'm talking about the whole entire AFC. Who could stop the Patriots from going AFC, back to the Super Bowl? Yeah. It would be, in my mind, it's Pittsburgh, no doubt. And I think they might have had a chance to do it already if they had a better coach. I just don't. I don't think that Mike Tomlin, um, you know, to 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 dethrone the Patriots. And I'm not talking. I'm not talking about for one year. Um, but you have to have. Um, you have to be meticulous, and you have to be on top of everything, and you cannot let anything slip. And I just don't think Mike Tomlin, as a coach, is disciplined enough to consistently beat the Patriots because I mean, you can make the argument for at least the past couple of years and certainly this year that the Steelers are more talented than the Patriots, but the the Patriots keep beating them like bags every year. And um, there's only one reason for that. I like that. All right. We got some juice going on now here. <laughs> so, so Greg, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to end <laughs> this with a little mini lightning round. I do the same thing every week with each guest. Just going to ask you a handful of random human interest questions not a lot of deep thought required. Whatever pops in your mind, that's your answer. All right, cool. Yep. All right. Your favorite athlete that you've ever covered? <sighs> favorite athlete that I've ever covered. It's a, probably a hard question. You've covered um, so many. I um I would have to say I would have to say Kevin Carter, who is now on ESPN, I think. He was defensive end. He's on my show a couple weeks ago. Yeah, he uh, he was just, you know, he, at that time he had been with the Rams and the Titans and he was toward the ends of his career and Saban brought in a bunch of those type of guys, mm-hmm. like six foot five, 300 pound guys. And, and he was just, he was just one of the smartest athletes that I've ever covered to where like, you know, he knew you would ask a question and you could see him thinking about like, okay, well, why is he asking this question? What is he after? And he would counter move you it was like a it was like a oh yeah it was like a chess match every time you interviewed kevin carter and you know and and the guy was a good dude to boot and he went to university of florida i was a big gators fan growing up down in florida and so um i just i just thoroughly enjoyed um covering casey i can't wait to send him a text after this and tell him he's got to listen to the show yeah. tomorrow all right favorite activity to do when you're not working uh just when i'm not working with bsj i'm always working like nah, literally every day. Fair enough. Um, but when I get a few hours, I just want to, I just want to be with my family. I mean, you know, usually, unfortunately at this point when the kids age right now, 
you know, and not unfortunately, but, you know, fortunately it's normally we're at a sporting events and going from different places and things like that. But, um, you know, really just vegging on the couch, watching some, you know, Bravo or lifetime that my wife likes to watch because, you know, <laughs> Lord knows she has to do enough, um, with me and has done enough to help me in my career. So if she wants to watch real housewives that night, it's all good by me. Yeah. You got a letter favorite city to visit. Uh, I would have to say San Francisco. Um, uh, we've just always loved it. We were fortunate that my first year on the dolphins beat 2004, um, the dolphins had two West coast games, Seattle, which is another favorite place of mine, uh, and San Francisco back to back and the dolphins petitioned once that did before the season to, have, to, to play both games back to back. So they stayed in San Francisco for the week. Mm. Unfortunately, Dave wants that got fired and before that and did not get to see that week, but we got to spend Thanksgiving week in San Francisco on the Palm beach Post's dime, me and my wife and you know, it doesn't get much better than that. It was just, it was a phenomenal week. It's a phenomenal town. It's so eclectic. New Orleans. I loved New Orleans is very close up there. Um, you know, but I would have to go with San Francisco. All right. Third, last question here. If for whatever reason you had never got involved in journalism or it didn't work out for whatever reason, what do you think you may have ended up doing with your life? A teacher and a coach, um, you know, and I still have thoughts about that and, you know, possibly going back and getting my master's and things like that. I've just, you know, I've always loved kids. I always love, I, I, I was fortunate to have a lot of great teachers and a lot of great coaches growing up. And I know how they influence me, um, to this day. And, um, you know, and I've coached a lot of youth sports over the years. Um, you know, I've it, lately, I've coached a lot of softball and, you know, I just, I just enjoy it. And I could, I could see the impact, um, that, you know, I have on the girls and, and the boys that I coach and, and, you know, I wouldn't, you know, not the greatest paying job in the world, but, you know, I wouldn't, I, I could see myself being very happy being a teacher and a coach and, and just, you know, it's, I really enjoy the challenge of trying, trying to find a way to reach a kid, to get them to be the best that they can. And, um, you know, I wouldn't mind doing that on a full-time basis. Yeah. I get, get that sense just from spending this last hour talking to you. Second, last question here. If Twitter were to send you a note and say, Hey, Greg, you're only going to be allowed to follow one person on Twitter. It's a new policy. One person, one person only. Who would that person be? Well, first of all, I would say, thank God. I only need to follow one more person. And you know, <laughs> maybe it might be followed by Twitter's going out of business. There will be no more Twitter. Um, because <laughs> what was once a great idea has devolved into something entirely else. But, um, you know, and I don't mean this to, I don't mean this to kiss up to him. And, and I, you know, I have a really hard time with this because I, I don't know, just nobody really comes to mind because I try to stay off Twitter as much as I can. But, uh, now, but if I had to name one person, I think it might be Peter King just because he just, he tweets about so many different things and he just, he's got a certain view of the world and, and, um, you know, he's just, you know, I don't, I know Peter gets a lot of hate. Um, there are a lot of people out there that hate Peter, which I just, I don't like, oh my God, it's like, it's like, it's like hating the Easter bunny or like a teddy bear. Like that's, 
Peter is like the nicest guy. I mean, you know, do yell at me at times that he and I get in shouting matches sometimes. Yeah. But I mean, I love the guy and I just think he's a tremendous human being. And, and I just, the way he lives life and I'm glad he's sort of slowing down a little bit now and sort of doing his own thing. And I hope he slows down even more. Cause I think, you know, him and, and, and his wife, um, deserve it. But I think it would be Peter just cause he just, you never know what you're going to get from him and you just know you're going to be entertained. Okay. Last question. You can have three dinner guests from any era, dead or alive, does not matter. It could be a thousand years ago, a hundred years ago, or yesterday. Three people, who would you have? Um, that's a good question. I think uh I think two of the spots would be taken over by two of my grandparents who passed before um before I was born. Um my father's father and my mother's mother. Um, you know, I've just heard so much about them um you know i would yeah. have liked to have met them and um the third spot um it's hmm, a good question i'm now drawing a blank um <laughs> it's tough it's tough i'm trying to, th- I'm trying to yeah I'm trying you'll to probably spend about an hour dirt. later on thinking oh my god this guy, yes, this guy this guy that probably, guy i mean i guess you know probably abraham lincoln I mean, you know, it's a good somebody one. like that. No, actually, I think it might be John Adams. I think I was just, you know, fascinated with the formation of this country, the revolution, you know, all that went on with it. You know, I was a big fan of 1776 and the miniseries on HBO. And he just, he just seemed like a really interesting guy, some sort of, you know, early American leader. I mean, I'm, it's not that exotic. It's probably boring. A lot of people probably think it's dumb but you know john adams or or you know abraham lincoln or you know somebody somebody of that ilk that's good stuff man all right greg bedard follow him on twitter at greg a bedard go check out bostonsportsjournal.com subscribe to that totally worth it this was fun i'll tell you what i've done i think 46 episodes now and this is definitely one of the two or three longest interviews that I've ever had on this show. And I'm telling you, honestly, Greg, I could have went another hour because there were some things that you started hitting on. I was like, man, I want to keep going off of that. Like I, I could probably go an hour just talking about your Twitter takes. Cause I'm pretty sure you have some pretty strong ones on that, but I've done, I've taken up enough of your time. This was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot for joining. Yeah. It, yeah, it was, we could have, we could have kept talking and, you know, hopefully with a chance to do it uh, someday in person over beer at some point. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap for today's episode. Big thank you again to Greg Bedard of bostonsportsjournal.com for joining me. He was great. That was a great conversation. He so obviously so carried it. Greg's one of the most respected writers in the business. So yet another major score for me in this podcast. Great stuff. Don't forget too, like I said at the top, this is the only show I'm doing this week. Not going to have a show on Friday this week. I'm traveling back to Florida. At the end of this week, I really love spending the past five and a half so weeks here in Buffalo, but I'm also very much looking forward to getting back home, back into my routine, and back in my comfortable little home studio in Bradenton instead of this sweat box that literally a sweat box that I've been recording in for the past uh, two or three episodes. Big change. Cannot wait to get back for that. If you haven't done so already, stop messing around Don't forget, 
go to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. It's quick. It's easy. It's completely free. You subscribe. Bam. Automatically, new episodes get sent to your phone or to your laptop to download and listen to. If you don't have iTunes, you can find us on Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, pretty much anywhere that future award-winning podcasts are heard. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Tweets. As always, thank you so much for listening. It really it means the world to me. Have a nice, safe week, a fun week. Talk to you guys again next Tuesday. Peace.